You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces The Glenn Show and all other shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them highly unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America, and even the world, is looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzero foundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help, and we deeply appreciate it. Hello, Daniel. How are you? Okay. How are you? Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. This is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show Bloggingheads.tv, uh, sponsored by the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, where I'm a professor of economics. And I'm with Daniel Markovitz, uh, who is the uh, Guido Calabresi Professor of Law at the Yale Law School and author of the book, The Meritocracy Trap, and we're here to talk about Daniel's book. It was published last year by Penguin Random House. Amidst much fanfare, it is a full-throated, I assure you, it is a very vigorous critique of uh, the status quo with respect to hierarchy um, and meritocratic uh, stratification and so on. And uh, Daniel and I had the pleasure, it was certainly my pleasure, uh, just before everything went dark, wasn't it? I mean, it was literally the last thing I did. The last public event I did, it was, it Me was too. to be on stage with you, and then we shut everything down. This was mid-March uh, back at Wellesley College, and they had a symposium on Daniel's book, which I was privileged to be able to participate in. Uh, but, you know, we're trying to pick up the pieces now and continue the conversation on this thing. So, uh, again, welcome to the Glenn Show, Daniel. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you again. Okay, so... Tell us what the book is about. I've read it now. (laughs) I had not at the time of the forum, much to my benefit. And it is definitely a a vigorously argued radical uh, egalitarian uh, intervention in the conversation here. But let me not characterize it further since the author is in our presence. Yeah, so it's basically an attack, as you say, a full-throated, systematic, full-spectrum attack on meritocracy which it sort of understands as America's common sense. And, you know, it's hard to disagree with the thought or to reject the thought that people should get ahead based on their own accomplishments rather than on their parents' social class or their gender or their race or their ethnicity. Um, It seems on the one hand that gives everybody a fair shot at success. And on the other hand, that creates an elite that is not lazy and unskilled, but rather energetic and capable, and that will serve everybody well. And the argument of the book is that while meritocracy maybe did work that way in the beginning, what's happened now is that the meritocratic elite has sort of ossified, and that meritocracy is creating, in effect, a new aristocracy, only now based on degrees and training rather than breeding, and that Meritocracy excludes most Americans from meaningful advantage. It remakes our education system and our economy in a way that serves the interests of the meritocratic elite. Um, And even the elite itself doesn't actually fare that well in human terms because it has to work all the time to extract income 
from its meritocratic training so that while it's wealthy, even it's not well, so that meritocracy in some sense has produced a kind of a gilded cage that excludes almost everybody from advantage and ensnares those whom it seems to benefit. So that's a quick summary of the claim of the book. Okay, so you have an economist over here who's worried about uh, the best, most talented people getting allocated to do uh, whatever the task is that's producing value for society. I want a meritocratic system leading to the engineers who are the most talented ones being the ones who are designing the the development. I want the doctors who are doing surgery on me to be the ones who are at the head of the class in biochemistry and in anatomy and whatnot, because those are the ones who are going to do the best surgery, et cetera, running my corporation and managing my portfolio, et cetera. I want to be able to discriminate amongst individuals based on their talent and ensure that the best people are the ones who are doing these tasks. Um, and I understand these judgments of uh, meritocratic evaluation to be the instrument that society uses to affect this outcome of the efficient assignment of people to task. Why isn't that a slam dunk? Yeah, so so there's a kind of an old argument in the book and then a new argument in the book in response to that, which is a totally sensible set of thoughts. Um, the old argument is that we're obviously concerned about fairness, not just efficiency. And we can have that dispute back and forth in ways that, that you know, we both are familiar with. Um, the new argument is that uh, it's not clear, actually, that the kind of meritocracy that we have actually produces the efficient public good in the way in which you've described. And, and the mechanism is the following. Um, we have to decide how we're going to deliver all these goods and services that you're describing, how we're going to deliver medicine, what technology we're going to use to deliver medicine, how we're going to deliver management, how we're going to run finance and law. And what meritocracy has done is it's produced a hyper-educated, superordinate working class, which has then bent the arc of innovation to favor technologies that use elite labor over technologies that use middle-class labor in ways that are good for elites, but maybe not particularly productive overall. And let me just give you uh, an easy example and then a hard example, and then we can talk about, about the idea in a concrete setting. So the easy example is finance. Um, you know, uh, finance at mid-century in America was a mid-skilled middle-class industry. Uh, it didn't employ more educated workers than the rest of the non-farm private sector. It didn't pay higher wages. Starting in the late 1970s, early 1980s, finance massively upskilled itself, changed the technology that it used to replace, for example, loan officers who were mid-skilled workers who decided whether individual loans were providently made with people who designed and then traded derivatives and other kinds of securities to replace accurate loan decisions with the hedging mechanism that worked through modern finance theory. There is all the evidence in the world that the new form of finance does not produce better social welfare or more economic growth than the old form of finance. It does make finance workers very, very rich. And then it distorts the decisions of elites to go away from fields that may have a higher social product and into finance. So that's the easy case. We, let's, I'll hold okay, be, be, before you give the other case, can I just respond? And I'm not trying to pick a fight with you. I yeah. first want to clarify the point, and then I want to ask a question. As I understand the point, it is that individuals differ, but they feed into structures or systems of production which have to be designed one way or the other. There's a tendency to orient the structures or systems of production 
in a way that places a special emphasis or weight on the characteristics that differ, that individuals differ by. It needn't be so. We could have different ways in which, for example, financial services were delivered to investors that didn't rely so much upon the meritocratic discriminating thing. So that's the, that's what I understand to be the assertion. Now, here's the question. You seem to be suggesting that that's because the insiders want to build the system in a particular way in order to reward the skills that they know that they have that other people don't have. But another argument could be, and I don't know if it applies in finance or not, but let's try it, that technology, who is, which is under nobody's control, people invent different methods of pricing derivatives, for example. I was present when Robert Merton, the uh, junior, was doing his path-breaking research on financing on, um, you know, the, how you think about uh, the pricing of finance. And this creates, once that genie is out of the bottle, and this is just a guy in his laboratory. He's not, he doesn't have any politics. He's, he's just trying to figure out how the system, you know, how financial instruments relate to each other in their pricing. Once that genie is out of the bottle, now uh, guys with PhDs in physics from MIT are getting hired by hedge funds in order to be able to do the calculations of the partial differential equation system that needs to be solved, et cetera. So that point is more general. T- technology sometimes creates facts on the ground that require certain kinds of specialization. Yeah. Not a political observation. And we want technology to do that because those technological advances expand the frontier of uh, production possibilities. And so yeah, so great. So, so a couple of responses to that. First, just to clarify my view, um, my view is not necessarily that elites are ga- engaging in planned self-dealing in remaking technology okay. in their favor. Rather, it's exactly what you say. Principally, what happens is innovations happen, and innovations may favor elites. Now, the, the, the central claim of the book on this set of problems is that technology does not develop according to its own laws but rather develops according to the social setting in which technology arises. And in particular, when you have a super educated, super elite labor force, that's the moment at which interested entrepreneurs develop technologies that will mix with this extreme level of skill and and, and work ethic to shift production to favor elite labor. So a couple pieces of evidence about that. First is the first industrial revolution which was massive technological change, did not bias production in favor of skilled workers. In fact, it biased production away from skilled artisans and in favor of unskilled factory workers. Uh, One speculation is that the reason that happened is that the move to the cities, and particularly in England, the Irish potato famine, produced a massive army of unskilled workers whose labor could then be deployed productively if somebody could invent technology that made it possible for relatively less skilled people to be productive. Um, In finance, the example that we're talking about, um, two things are true. The first is that the basic math that's involved in securitization has been familiar since Pascal. And that the underlying economic models, you know, the capital asset pricing model, the Black-Scholes equation, those are from the 40s to the 60s, mid-60s, early 70s. But securitization didn't get going really until the 80s and 90s. So there was a lag. So why was there this lag? Well, my speculation is that what happened in the United States is that the U.S. won the space race and detente ended the arms race. And in the 50s and 60s, American physics departments and engineering departments have produced a massive explosion 
of technically trained workers. There weren't jobs for them in the in the industry, so exist they had to go into finance and find something to do. Exactly right. There was a there was a, a workforce that had the skills that meant that this technology, which had lain idle, could suddenly be deployed, and finance was remade. That's the kind of story I want to tell. Just like in the Industrial Revolution, the first one, there was suddenly this army of unskilled workers. And so technology shifted to match them. So if you have an unequal training system that produces a superordinate working class, we will find technologies to use them, and then they'll get paid extremely well. But that may not be in the social interest. Yeah, again, my I can't help this economics uh, training that keeps uh, popping back on me. I'm thinking about prices. I'm saying, okay, there's a lot of unskilled labor. Prices are going to be low. So production is going to tend to emphasize the use of the factor that's relatively cheap. There are a lot of people who know advanced mathematical techniques. Maybe that in, somehow plays a role in it. But it, but there's no there's no con- conspiracy. I don't mean this in the, any disrespect, but I mean it kind of feels like you're saying they're meeting in a room somewhere, and that they're yeah. So I don't mean they're meeting in a room. Um, but but what I do mean, you know, this is for an economist. This is these are be fighting words. It's a little bit like Say's law. Um, so it is a case of supply that creates its own demand. People, yeah, its own demand. Now, and if you look actually from say 1960 to 1990 at the relative supply of college-educated workers and the college wage premium, what you see is that over time, from the 50s through the 70s or so, the relative supply goes up. And what you'd expect if the relative supply of college-educated workers goes up, you'd expect the college wage premium to go down, as it does for a period. But then in the 70s and 80s, the relative supply keeps on going up, and the college wage premium makes a U-turn. And start shooting up. And, and so that little piece of microdata is at least consistent with the story that I'm telling, that initially there was an oversupply of college-educated workers using the old technology, which meant that there wasn't enough for college-educated people to do in a sense, so their wages went down. But then the existence of this cadre of workers caused a technological transformation, which precisely favored their skills at which point the college wage premium goes up. There's a similar story with the high school wage premium between 1910 and 1925, where you see an explosion of the labor supply with high school skills, a drop in the high school wage premium, and then technological change and a rapid increase in the high school wage premium. So that's the kind of story that I want to okay. tell. It okay. could be true, it could be false, but it's possible. Just so people can follow, I mean, we're talking, Daniel says technology might evolve uh, in ways that tend to endogenously emphasize the very differentiating skills that cause elite hierarchies to emerge. And I was saying, well, is that a conspiracy? He says, no, there's some natural forces at work. But you said that there was the easy and then there was the, I assume, harder uh, argument to make. And you made the easy one. Right. So the, the, it's really the easy case. So finance is the easier case because I, I think intuitively there aren't a lot of people who think that the kind of finance we have right now serves the real economy well. I think people think there's yeah. – some people do, but most people don't. So medicine, I think, is the really hard case because, as you said, you want the best trained surgeon operating on you. Yeah. And medical innovations certainly benefit people generally, you know, when we can cure a disease or when we can do a new kind of surgery or have a new kind of hip replacement or something. Um, so 
the 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 case about medicine is going to have to look something like this. Um, we as a society have a choice about how to deliver medical care and health. And what we have in the United States today right now is a model of healthcare delivery and of you know, medical well-being production that focuses on high-tech and super-skilled workers. A lot of specialists, a lot of MRI machines, a lot of innovation. We can transplant a human heart. We can build a mechanical heart. Um, but here are some things that we don't know. We don't know whether it's better for your heart health to exercise intensively for an hour once a week or moderately for 30 minutes three times a week. or just We don't know because, excuse me for interrupting, we don't know because we haven't asked? We haven't asked. We don't have the army of public health workers and nurse practitioners and the infrastructure that we would need to get those questions answered. And the conjecture is that, yeah, once you need the heart transplant, you want the super skilled surgeon doing it. But ex ante, and as a society, we're always ex ante. We would have better heart health if we diverted the resources away from the surgeon and the heart transplant technology and towards public health workers, nurse practitioners, nutritionists, exercise facilities in ways that made everybody well using a mid-skilled workforce and low-tech means. And, and, and so it's the same as the finance story you can see just in medicine, but it's harder to make the case in medicine because obviously the value of the super skilled person is so incredibly high once you're sick. Okay. Let's stay with this for a minute. I, I, I'm, I, I think I'm understanding something about your argument that I didn't before. Um, the choice about how to organize the delivery of medical services has implications for meritocratic hierarchy. Yeah. And a relative emphasis on high tech interventions once one has gotten past the point where a more kind of holistic, uh, you know, lifestyle uh, management can be effective, that that choice by society uh, leads to uh, a over-reliance upon this sort of pyramidal structure of technologically differentiated skill acquisition. Um, but here's my question. My question is, why should equality be the, I mean, choosing between those two worlds, presumably mm-hmm. we think the one in which we don't rely so much on, uh, you know, uh, open heart surgery to deal with cardiovascular issues is a better world. It's a, a public health world, an exercise world, a diet focused world, a, a culture of the more holistic uh, maintenance of, of right. health would be a better world. Now that's true regardless of the inequality implications of one or the other of these worlds. It feels to me that we should be talking directly about how do we do health, not backing into that conversation through an equality argument. Yeah. Yeah. And so one thing about, you know, in the book, I'm actually very careful. I don't think I use the word unjust a single time because I, I precisely don't want to think in that, in the way you've just described as I don't want to think, the issue is justice or equality. Rather, the issue can be framed in another way as systemic good functioning. And a world in which we have a more equal training system and a more equal labor market will also be a world that's more productive, more efficient, 
has higher GDP per capita or whatever measure we want because it will be free of the distortions that you and I are now talking about, which both produce hierarchy, which may be objectionable or may not be. I find it objectionable, but that's my private opinion. But also diverts resources away from higher and better uses, which just aren't available because we don't have the trained nurse practitioners. We don't have enough GPs. We don't have enough nutritionists. We don't have the institutions that they would need to occupy in order to get at patients. And the reason we don't is that the doctors and the super trained specialists distort the way medicine is structured. Not because they're doing it trickily or mean spiritedly, but just because of their sort of economic attractiveness and charisma and power means that technology moves in their direction. That's the kind of story. Okay, I'm going to try one more time to push back a little bit against this story, uh, which is intriguing. So I'm, I've said I'm an economist. I can remember graduate school. I'm, I know that there's inequality in economics. It's very male. It's very white. Okay. Um, and people are concerned about that. So one of the things that they say is, let's look at how economics, the graduate curriculum is designed. Let's look at how the profession, the journals run, what things they value, what kinds of research are being done. They tend to be quantitative, statistical, econometric, mathematical, technical uh, manipulations of data, this kind of thing. They tend not to be ethnographic, not to be historical, not to be sociological, not to be case study based. You could organize economic research differently. That's, I'm not saying don't ask about inflation or unemployment or incentives. I'm just saying. You could think about organizing it differently so that there was less emphasis on this kind of techie, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mathematical, you know, what the first year graduate programs required courses look like, what the, what's on the exams, what, you know, like that. And if you did, you'd probably get more blacks and Latinos into economics because that's one of the portals where with the test scores and all of that and the differences in the populations, the relative performance on this mathematical skill. And we could think about designing economics. And I, now I say all of that to say this. To me, that would be a terrible way to think about designing economics. I, I don't know whether or not Robert Merton's partial differential equation approach to evaluating assets is better or worse than going and interviewing some man, you know, financial managers. But uh, it would be a terrible, it seems to me, a terrible way to make the decision. Maybe I'm only repeating this point that I was making earlier. Uh, 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 to make the decision about the organization of economics based upon a line of argument that said, you see, you guys rely too much on math. Math excludes a lot of women and uh, people of color. Uh, you should change the way you do economics in order to open it up, to be more inclusive, to be more diverse. That feels like the tail wagging the dog to me. So, so three thoughts about that. Um, the first is that um, the place at which to intervene is unlikely to be elite graduate education. That is to say, if we had a different economic order, a different kind of labor market, we would have a different way of delivering primary education, preschool education, different patterns of assortative mating, different parenting practices in early infancy, a whole bunch of things, which would mean that it would no longer be true that mathiness favored white men from professional families or favored them as much, right? So that uh, given that all the rest of this is the way it is, 
it's going to be very hard for MIT's economics department to do meaningful social change. So that's, that's one, one thought. Second thought is, um, you know, there's a, there's an issue here in what we think the output of an elite economics department is or should be. If we think the output is professionalized knowledge of the sort that, that the few people who have mastered the discipline recognize and admire as profound and creative, then I think your argument is the strongest. If we think the output is socially useful techniques and ideas to improve the functioning of the economy, it's not obvious to me that the product of economics departments today, for all its ingenuity and precision and, you know, firework level, luminous talent display, does a lot to make our economy function better. And it may be that some of the other things you're describing might do more. A third point, and then I'll stop, is, you know, there's an intermediate way of organizing this. I actually had this conversation um, in an appointments context recently. Uh, you know, the way in which people are hired, admired, promoted in elite universities is based increasingly on uh, possessing and mastering a set of techniques rather than having something true to say about important problems. And, and you could imagine instead, even in economics, organizing careers around the question, for example, what is the effect of the marginal tax rate on the labor market? And someone would study that and they'd use some econometric techniques and they'd use some demographic techniques and they'd use some sociological techniques and they'd do some political philosophy and everything would be directed at that problem. And they'd spend a whole career on that problem rather than saying, I'm going to be an expert in time series econometrics. And I'm going to jump from issue to issue to issue, just wherever my toolkit happens to be useful, given the data sets that are at this moment available. I'm not sure that this other method of organization I'm describing would produce a worse economics department. I'm not sure it would, but I'm not sure it would. But yeah, I guess... What I want to say is the question is who decides, uh, yeah. you know, I'd hate to have a committee of non-physicists trying to tell physics departments what the problems are that they should. Totally. Work I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, but again, one last thought about this, you know, as I said at the beginning, I don't think the place to do social transformation is elite graduate schools. Yeah. Um, but, but it's also the case that if we had a less extreme meritocratic hierarchy so that your ability to do well at the kinds of things that elite graduate schools do becomes your general key to advantage, to wealth, to status. Yeah. Then the elite graduate schools will be much freer to do whatever they wanted yeah. because the rest of society would say, you know, you guys do your little thing. Whereas right now what these universities are is they're basically social engineering departments for America. Okay, well, let me turn this back on you, uh, Mr. Professor Guido Calabresi was a great man. Uh, law and economics, he was, I can remember when I was in yeah. graduate school, his, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was about torts and, you know, the incentives. Yeah, the and, uh, that's it. Uh, anyway, anyway, anyway. Uh, you're the Guido Calabresi professor at the Yale Law School. Last time I checked, that was the best friggin' law school on the planet. 
I mean, pretty elite. Okay, you're going to deny that because you're an anti-meritocrat. But, I mean, everybody wants to go there. And you all admit, how many? 6%, 8% of your applicants? Something like that. So, uh, physician, heal myself. I I am an awkward messenger. I totally agree. um, I mean, this this is, and this is, I mean, this is a point. This is uncomfortable for me. um, But it's also a broader point, I think, about our public culture, which which is this. uh, No part of the book is testimony. Um, uh, you know, insofar as I talk about my own position in the book, I do it only to admit that this is an awkward position I'm in. But the structure of the book is not, um, believe me because I have lived it. It's rather, here are a series of facts, which you as a reader can verify or disconfirm. And here are a series of arguments involving, you know, causal connections that are claimed and moral or normative associations, which you can evaluate yourself regardless of who has developed them. And that's the structure of the book. Um, so that in a sense, yes, absolutely guilty is charged. You know, yeah, I'm not, I'm not in a good place in this system. Um, I mean, it's privately good for me, but it's not an honorable place. But, but I don't think that's, Yeah, I'm that sorry to interrupt again. Now, I just want to ask you, what would be the analog in the context of, quote, elite legal education of the observations you were just making about economics? Uh, you yeah. know, you could focus on the labor market and taxation. You right. don't have to go in with a machine full of, right. you know, complex right. techniques. Right. What, what, how would legal education look different under a Markowitz uh, dispensation? Well, well, legal education and law would look very different in the following sense. Um, if you take a country like Germany, um, it has no super elite law schools. Uh, it has no private. It has one private law school, Bucerius, in Hamburg, but they're all state run. Um, law is a you know universities are elite everywhere, but there's no equivalent of Harvard or Yale Law School. People go to their local law schools. Uh, it has an army of well trained lawyers, but nothing like the intensity of training that the top few American law schools give, or the intensity of selection. And German law, in various of its technological facets, is much less responsive to extreme creativity and skill. So German dispute resolution law, so German procedure, because it's inquisitorial rather than adversarial, puts the court in charge of the facts. Judges have a fair amount of discretion. And so a competent lawyer is just as good for a client in Germany as the very best lawyer. German transactional law, both because its contract law has lots of mandatory terms and because its large organizations, its corporations are structured in such a way that limit their freedom to make creative deals, again, does not reward extremes of lawyerly skill or creativity. So what Germany has is a relatively egalitarian legal training system and a form of legal production that requires competence but does not favor extreme skill, whereas the U.S. has an incredibly hierarchical legal training system and a form of legal production that at every point rewards increased increments of skill so that, you know, the cravath partner is better for the client in a lawsuit than the partner at just a pretty good law firm. And David Boys is a lot better than the ordinary Super and, and you know, if you're in a corporate setting, if, if you can get Marty Lipton, you want Marty Lipton to structure your deal. Now, the interesting thing is that the German legal system 
produces a higher quality of justice. How do you know at that? A cost than the American one does. How do you know that? Well, I, I'm, I am asserting it. I don't okay. I mean, why? So how do I know it? So here's one piece of evidence. If you want one serious piece of evidence, yeah. if you go around the world, uh, since the end of the second world war, something like a hundred countries have adopted a new legal system, uh, roughly out of whole cloth. I think of those hundred north of 90% have adopted a legal system based on the German legal system. And almost zero have adopted a legal system based on the American legal system. Okay. Um, so I, I assume now that what you're saying about law schools and, and, and elite stratification would apply more broadly to higher education. Uh, we're both in the Ivy League here, et cetera. Everybody wants to get in. Um, someone was telling me, one of my colleagues last night, that Brown has moved up in the rankings of, uh, of universities, and we're now ahead of Princeton. And somebody, U.S. News and World Report, is somebody's ranking. And uh, I said, oh, that's great. And I asked, what were the uh, measures that you used to compare universities? And one of the principal ones is how low is your acceptance rate? Yes. Yes. You know, because that shows you're exclusive, you know, and you want to reject yeah. people. I said, oh, we're better if we reject more people. I mean, doesn't that give you pause? Um, so we were talking about that. But uh, you think American higher education is, uh, I should ask you, I know kind of what your answer is going to be because we had this conversation before, but everybody didn't hear it. Uh, what do you think in light of uh, the meritocracy trap uh, is wrong with American higher education more broadly? Well, it's much, much too intensive and much too exclusive. Um, Would you get so, rid of the SAT scores? Uh, excuse me again. You know, I might get the SAT is complicated. I, I probably on balance would get rid of the SAT scores. Um, at the moment, I think given where we are, the SAT is one of the facets of college admissions that is most biased in favor of prior privilege, um, both race and class. Um, and there's data to support this, um, that, you know, if admissions were based exclusively on the SAT score, um, you know, elite colleges would be substantially richer and substantially more white than they are right now. Um, Let me just clarify. You're not saying that the SAT doesn't measure anything relevant. You're just saying whatever it measures is more prevalent amongst those who have class privilege. Yeah, so it's uh, so I'm saying two things. I do think it measures something relevant, um, okay. and I, I think it's complicated. The studies that suggest that the SAT has a very low or relatively low correlation with college performance are, um, I think, almost all fundamentally flawed because the nature of selectivity at universities mean that they can look at only a relatively narrow band of SAT inputs and the full distribution of college grades. Whereas if, you know, if a place like Brown started taking people who were in the fifth percentile on the SAT, yeah. they would not do well at Brown. Right. Um, so I do think it measures something, but I think it is actually one of the most gameable components of the admissions process. It, it is incredibly sensitive to training and to practice tests and to tutors who specialize in getting people to get higher scores. And so in that sense, it's become an opportunity for elites to advantage their children. Um, and I think it is a greater opportunity than other parts of the application portfolio. And there's data to support that. So for, so for that reason, I, I'm skeptical of including it. You know, the complication is compared to what? And 
if we have an incredibly stratified high school system and connections can help people get into college, you know, one thing the SAT even now is good for is it identifies the, you know, exceptional outlier who doesn't have other forms of privilege, but does really well. And I think that's real. I think that's a real thing that it does. And so there's a balance here. I think overall it favors the elite, but it also opens up doors for exceptional cases. And one has to trade off those two effects to decide all things considered, whether it's benign or, or not. Okay. Just a, a sidebar question here. It's a little bit technical, but you say on the one hand, uh, if we had an unrestricted range in the data, we'd be able to find the correlation between SAT and post-admissions performance because it's surely the case if someone comes in with very low scores, they're unlikely to do well at a demanding college. On the other hand, you say it's manipulable or one of those in, indicia that's most susceptible to uh, what you're calling gaming. And I'm wondering how those two things can both be true at the same time. Uh, I mean, I understand that you can take prep courses and that that will have some effect on your SAT score, but um, the uh, prep courses that affect your SAT score may also affect your performance after you get into college. I mean, don't you have to assume that some part of the SAT score really isn't the, the part that's susceptible to gaming isn't really, you know, measuring a productive trait. It's just measuring a kind of practicum or kind of, you know, uh, I, I, yeah. I saw multiple choice questions before. Now I know how to answer them kind of thing like that. Yeah, look, so I think one thing that's important here about the underlying data is that the gap between the SAT scores of the privileged elite and the middle class is much, much greater than the gap between the SAT scores of the middle class and people in poverty. So, um, for example, in a recent year, uh, if your household income was over $200,000 a year, that puts you in about the top 4% of the income distribution. Um, your average SAT score was 250 points higher than the average SAT score of a kid whose household income was right at the American median. Whereas the kid at the median on average scored only 125 points higher than a kid whose household income was $20,000 or less. So at or below the poverty line. And the reason why I raise this in response to your question is that when you combine that fact with the incredible intensity of competition for admission, what it takes to get into a place like Brown or Yale or Harvard is, you know, you, you need to get those last five points on the SAT to move you from the 95th to the 99th percentile. And, and that's the thing that I think is particularly gameable and particularly requires training at taking the SAT rather than generalized academic education. That That's very helpful, actually. Um, so I want to go back to talking about assortative meeting, about the family, about uh, helicopter parents who hover, um, mm -hmm. about tiger moms, uh, about uh, people who are competing to get into the right preschool in yeah, New York yeah. City. So that they can get into the right prep schools. So Five percent admissions rate at some of these preschools. Um, how are you going to stop people from doing that? They love their kids, and uh, everybody wants their kid, you know, to be uh, on top. I mean, this is a very natural uh, thing yeah, yeah. about uh, human behavior, it would seem to me. Right. Um, I mean, look, there are some ways you could stop doing that, which would be uh, harsh interventions 
unimaginable in our social and legal order. And I might be skeptical of them. I suspect you'd be very skeptical of them. But so, for example, the city of Berlin recently enacted a statute that makes it effectively illegal for a nursery school to charge its parents more than roughly 80 euros a month above the state subsidy level. So that in Berlin, it's not really possible to have gold-plated nursery schools. So one way to do it is to make it illegal. Um, another way to do it, which is more palatable, I think, uh, is to observe that the tax exemption that elite private schools have is in fact a massive reverse subsidy from the middle class to the elite. Yeah. Um, and that's true all the way up through university. Um, somebody recently calculated that Princeton University's tax exemption. If you include the uh, exemption from taxes on its endowment income and the tax deductions that donors get amounts to a subsidy of about $100,000 per Princeton student per year which is 40 times as much as the public subsidy given to Essex County Community College. And it's more than the tuition that the kids are paying. It's more than the tuition that they're paying, absolutely. And um, there are more students at Princeton from the top 1% of the income distribution than from the bottom 60%. And that's also true at St. Anne's School in Brooklyn or the Dalton School or the very posh preschools in Manhattan. And so one thing one might do is say to these schools, unless you have a more economically diverse student body, we're going to treat you as a private club rather than as a public charity and take away your tax exemption. Um, that seems to me actually a relatively appealing legal change. Let me observe that even if I were to look at public institutions, the University of California system, University of North Carolina system, University of Michigan system. There are many campuses, and they are ranked. There are flagship campuses like Berkeley and UCLA. There's Cal State, Fullerton. There's, you know, um, so even within a public system that's paid for by taxpayer dollars, educators and administrators have seen fit to construct differentiated, some very selective, some less so, some even less so, a hierarchy of institutions. Now, is that an artifact of something or is it a reflection of the, of the need to meet, you know, the demands of the workplace, the require the preparation of students? I mean, one reason I want to stratify and specialize is because I think I can teach the advanced material more effectively, you know, et cetera. So yeah. again, I'm, I'm kind of pushing back against this. Uh, we see the hierarchy, and, but but it needn't be that way. And I'm I'm wondering if uh, University of yeah, California yeah. isn't telling us something that you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look. First of all, um, I, I was a math major in college, um, and Serge Lang was one of my professors. Um, uh, you know, who was an algebraist and a yeah, I was a math major too. I've heard of Lang. Yeah, who attacked the social sciences, but he used to say that uh, to reject an extreme is not to affirm its opposite, and so. It's not part of my view that there is no appropriate place okay. for selection, hierarchy, stratification. It's just my view that our version of this is so extreme that we could reduce it materially and maybe more than materially, a lot, and not 
lose the legitimate advantages of some degree of selectivity. Um, but the, the second point is, you know, when we have created a labor market and a workforce in which, for example, we've stripped middle management out of American companies so that either you are a high-flying manager with a business school degree or you have very little managerial discretion in your job and it's very hard to work your way out from the mailroom to the corner office. What that means is that our education system is also going to become hierarchical and stratified because it's going to need to select people who can jump into the super elite work early on in their careers rather than getting people so that they have certain basic skills, which allow them to enter into a relatively less stratified workplace, maybe get some workplace training, rise as much as they rise, and then the technology that organizes work, in this case managerial technology, will be much less hierarchical and stratified, and so you won't need as many super managers as we have now. There are lots of reasons. You know, U.S. US workplaces used to provide massive amounts of workplace training to their employees. They now provide effectively none. Um, there are lots of reasons why that's the case. One, I think, you know, interesting for economists is that the demise of unions and the rise of high-frequency labor markets and people shifting jobs all the time has meant that if one employer trains its employees, that employer's competitor will be able to poach the training employer's workers by paying a wage that the training employer can't afford to pay because they've incurred the training costs. And so now you're in a kind of prisoner's dilemma in which nobody trains because if anybody does train, they'll pay to train their competitor's workforce. Yeah. Whereas, for example, a union wage scale, which makes wages depend on seniority, is actually a coordinating technique that allows everybody to train. That's an interesting example. point. Um, but there's hierarchy everywhere. Okay, so here's another pushback. The 80-20 rule, the top 20% or whatever the thing is are going to get 80% of the whatever the thing is. Uh, people who write books, some are also ran, some are uh, superstars, and they sell a million books a year. People who play sports... Uh, some are able to make it into the professional leagues and they play for three or four years and they make, you know, 150,000, 300,000 or whatever. Some are making, you know, $20 million a year contracts and stuff like that. Entertainment, uh, you know, some TV shows are popular. Some movie stars are billable, et cetera. Um, everywhere I look, I see stratification uh, and hierarchy in um, uh, the provision of services to people when it is visibly possible to rank their performance. So uh, are you against all of that or is that? Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Look, there's always going to be some, right? The question is how much and how, how much the hierarchy is tied to social status and economic reward. So take sports, which is a fascinating example. Yeah. Uh, six, eight months ago, I saw somewhere on the internet, a side by side video clip of the winning vault in the women's Olympics in 1956 and 2012 or whatever it was. And, you know, the woman in 1956, you know, ran up to the vault, did like a flip and landed. The woman in 2012, like did three flips before she got to the vault, right. flipped onto the vault, did six spins and landed. Right. Now here's a, a, a serious question. Which form of sports competition of Olympic competition better promotes the human interest in sport. 
the the 1956 woman was able to compete without destroying her bones and joints for the rest of her life, without probably acquiring an eating disorder as part of her training, without taking performance-enhancing drugs. The, the 1956 form of the Olympics was one in which you and I could sort of participate, imagine that we were doing something similar when we go out and play sports, whereas the current version is one in which I mean, it's almost, it's like a, it's like a freak show. You watch what these people do and they can do things that I couldn't, I can't play with them. They're not playing the same game I'm playing. And and so there's a way in which both for the athletes and for the rest of us, a, a less extremely competitive, less hierarchical form of athletic competition serves what makes sports great for us better than the current version, which damages the athletes on their quest for advantage and makes sports not something we can participate in the rest of us. So so that's the kind of story I want to tell. Yeah, there's going to be some hierarchy. The 56 woman, she was the best in the world. Just how much and to what end? Yeah, some people would call it progress. They would, uh, they would say this is the refinement and this is pushing forward human performance to its, you know, its ultimate limit and, and whatnot. I, yeah. there's something very subversive about your argument, and I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean, it actually ultimately, you know, disturbs the foundations of the way in which we think about living our, uh, together. You know, you say you don't use the word justice. It, this is, this transcends justice. This, this is, you know, uh, what, what, what does the human spirit require and, and, and how does it get translated? These are rat races that you're talking. These are, these are, you know, self-consuming zero-sum type competitions that are bad for the bad for the soul, and and yeah. yet maybe inevitable because everybody wants to get a little bit ahead yeah. of the next person. Yeah, so and so one of the one of the like one of the arguments in the book is if you're the supposed winner of this thing, it's not clear it's serving your interests well that. You know, more people who are bankers at Goldman Sachs and partners at Cravath and CEOs at Comcast and professors at Brown and Princeton and Harvard um, are are like the winning Olympic vault gymnast from 2012, which is to say we have distorted and abused and exploited our energies and lives in ways that make us come out on top but actually not flourish. And if we could be persuaded of that, it might lead these institutions or us collectively to change on the margins. Again, to reject an extreme is not to affirm its opposite, the way in which we operate. And if we did that, it would also have the advantage that the rest of society would have a more meaningful access to income status and so on. Okay, I know your time is limited. I want to I want to ask you one final question, and it's about affirmative action. This is going to be a curveball, Dan. I'm I'm going to signal the, the pitch even before I throw it. Why isn't yours a fundamental critique of affirmative action? Affirmative action accepts hierarchy, it accepts stratification and elitism, and then it seeks to get an integrated representative presence of the different groups at the different strata. Right. Uh, that buys into a system that should be critiqued. Why wouldn't a group like African-Americans who've been excluded bring our weight to the table on behalf of the underlying subversive 
destabilization of the hierarchical order right. rather than bringing our weight to the table and asking for our cut. Right. Well, look. Um, so you're against affirmative action, aren't you? Well, no. Um, <laughs> so, so look, um, the, the question is what's possible, right? I, I actually think affirmative action for African-Americans is a, a very particular and quite distinctive issue, partly r- relating to the fact that you know, the, the form of slavery that the United States adopted, its central role in the production of American national wealth, its exceptional physical, legal, and human brutality, and the enduring form of racial caste system that this society still has today, means that there are claims based on race in the United States that are different even from claims based on race in other places in the world. Although that's not an argument for affirmative action no, in the hierarchical no, no, context. But, but, but what it means is, you know, if one, if one thinks there's a systematic case, for example, for black reparations, hmm. which I'm inclined to think there is, it may be that in the world that we have it now, something like affirmative action is a part of the reparations program. All right. Now, now that, that just says, look, we're living in a, in a particular moment world. We have a limited set of options. Is affirmative action part of what ought to be done to redress both a history and a current status of massive racial inequality? But, but your, that doesn't go to the thrust of your question, which is, you know, if, if, if the question is what would be a true liberating movement liberating on the basis of race as well as other forms of liberation, would racial equality be better furthered by a liberation movement that also sought to produce class equality, also sought to undo social and economic hierarchy of the sort that I'm describing? I think I'm inclined to think the answer to that is yes, you know, which is a little bit related to, to Martin Luther King's turn in his later years towards a, yeah. you know, a race and workers movement which I think picks up on what, on what you're saying. Now, so I find that vision appealing, but given that we are where we are and, and we may be making more narrow interventions, I don't think that that's an argument against the narrower interventions associated with affirmative action. Does that we seem can, yeah. yeah, it does seem, I, I think I get it. And we can discuss uh, reparations on another occasion. I'm not yeah. as enthusiastic as you are, although for reasons that you might actually credit, but it, it's another conversation. Uh, I mean, I hear you re- answering me by saying, yeah, wealth inequality is a problem too, uh, racial wealth inequality. And we could get rid of it if they had no wealth inequality, but that's a, that's a quixotic, uh, yeah. you know, it's never going to happen. It's a day, it's a dream. And so let's redress the racial wealth disparities, even if we recognize that wealth disparity overall is greater than what we would like yeah. it to be. So. Anyway, yeah. I don't know. I think we covered the, you want anything else you want to say about the book before Just we thank uh, bring you. off? It's been a great conversation from my end. I'm grateful to you for taking the time. Um, Me too. And I, you know, I hope that uh, when this thing is over, uh, we can just get together actually in person rather than over the ether and carry uh, on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to many such meetings and uh, gathering with you will be one of them for sure. Uh, right. You know, I, I'm trying to organize some uh, activity here at Brown where we talk about inequality type issues and you're right down the road. So uh, maybe I could call on you to come up and talk to us yeah. about some of your well, stuff. Well, we'll have you come back to Yale too. We'll we'll find a way to do that. Sounds good.